Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and this is our Wednesday show, where we sit down with a guest, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today, we are joined by none other than Taylor Lorenz, a columnist covering tech and online culture at The Washington Post. She's also worked at The Hill, The Daily Beast, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. Her first book, Extremely Online, comes out later this year. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So Extremely Online, I know that first week sales really matter. So comes out October 3rd. Are pre-orders currently live for the book? Yes, pre-orders are live right now. So please, please pre-order. I did not realize until I wrote a book how much pre-orders matter. They're like the main thing that matter for book sales. So if you're interested, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any platform. It's just funny to me that one, you wrote a book about online culture, which is the slowest possible way to commentate on this fast moving thing. And then we're also still stuck in this paradigm of first week sales lists and so forth. So it's kind of a weird archaic method of approaching this topic, even though it's so pertinent and kind of normal. But it struck me when I was reading the text that I was reading like a physical historical book about something that is so digital and online. Did you feel any kind of like ironic tension between the book writing process and the subject material? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't initially anticipate writing a book. I feel like I probably thought maybe I'll make some YouTube videos about all this stuff. But I wanted something that would sort of stand the test of time. While I was writing this book, actually, one of the old websites that I worked for, well, it had been acquired, but it got redesigned and all of our old links broke for a while. And it just, the internet is so impermanent. And so much of this history has not really been written about in in a book form yet. It sort of just lives online. So I wanted to document it all. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show because when I was thinking about the book you were writing and the history of online platforms, online culture, online personalities, it's pretty much a startup story because companies that we now think of as these behemoths, you know, your metas and your snaps of the world were at one point in time, very small companies. And in fact, some of the ones that had the most influence didn't actually make it. One thing that really stood out to me was the kind of rise and fall of Vine. And I actually missed this era of social media. And I felt kind of bad, but reading it was very interesting. But it seems like some platforms were very early on engaging with creators, as we now call them, and some platforms were very hesitant to it. I'm curious, why did Vine end up so much on the wrong side of that equation when so many other platforms eventually managed to get it right? Yeah, honestly, I think it was sort of this dual problem. One is that the Vine founders were very kind of beholden to this vision that they had for Vine. You know, this is always a problem with startups. It's like you really never know how your product is going to be used. And I think there are some founders who really lean into these, you know, emergent use cases and some founders who get very frustrated with the ways that people are using the product, you know, when it's not intended. And that was the case with Vine, where, you know, the founders wanted it to be this artful place for video and, you know, stop motion animation and things like that. And who was it most frequently used by, you know, a bunch of like 14 and 16 year olds making inappropriate jokes. And there was this hostility from the beginning towards these big content creators. Also, you know, Vine was owned by Twitter, which has also notoriously had this fraught relationship with content creators. And part of that goes back to the original founding of Twitter when celebrities wanted to be paid for their tweets. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit with Instagram as well and Justin Bieber, but there was this sort of like understanding from the social platforms that no, we don't want to cater to the biggest people. And, you know, we don't want to pay our users for content because we're a platform. And and so when you had these content creators starting to get really popular on Vine, there was that culture of like, well, we don't compensate people in any way for their content. 
the Vine story, though, struck me as kind of a microcosm of something that I think really matters because it seemed like the platform itself did not take the individual users, the power users, the people that are really driving the conversation seriously. And reading through the history of, I don't know, social media to a degree, but also blogging back in the day, again and again and again, there was this new burgeoning thing that was either unlocking a new format or a new audience or a new set of people who could then create and be publicly visible. And it was consistently dismissed by people who either were in power or who actually owned the thing in question in the case of Vine. Yes. And to me, like online culture is just culture. It's not distinct in this way that people want to divine it. And so just because I'm a brat, Taylor, you work for the post, which is kind of (laughs) like, you know, I think it still comes out on dead trees on a regular basis. So how have you managed to blend like your focus on taking the internet seriously, which I think is good with working at a place that is more conservative and perhaps a storied institution, if you will? (laughs) I know. It's really funny. Well, I mean, I have to say I started out as a blogger. I have no formal training in journalism at all. I was working temp jobs at a call center and somebody introduced me to Tumblr and I had had sort of like blog spot, you know, blogs before. And I was drinking the Kool-Aid on the blogger culture stuff. And I thought, you know, oh, we're going to take down traditional media. And I hate traditional media. And I wrote, you know, so critically about traditional media. I don't know if my boss has read any of my writing about that stuff before I was hired. But, you know, this was back in 2009 when blogs were ascendant. And I think if I had been able to monetize my internet presence the way that people can today, back then, I would have never ended up in traditional media. But I'm really glad that I did because I've learned so much about journalism and it's definitely humbled me. I think there's a lot of benefit to traditional media now. Although you're right, they don't understand the internet broadly. (laughs) I mean, just... And it feels like Still, to a degree, like yes. I, I, I guarantee that if I wrote something for a print publication and brought it home to my parents, they would be more excited about that, even if it was like small and microscopic and no one read it, than they would be about me putting out like a hundred things on the internet that got a hundred times the reach. And there still seems to be this kind of cultural mismatch between where people are actually consuming and where prestige and like money sits. And I, I can't quite figure out why that hasn't cross the transom over to the place where audiences really are. And it's getting better, but it still feels Mm -hmm. like people want to hype up the Grammys or the Emmys every year. And then every year there's a story that's like, you know, record low viewership, but then everyone still freaks out about them as if they were the same kind of culturally ascendant thing that they might have been 20 years ago, but haven't been in 20 years. I, I just can't square it in my head. I know. I used to work for People Magazine, and one of my editors told me that, like, these internet stars love to be in People Magazine because it gives them this, like, sort of prestige. But People Magazine is not People Magazine that it was in the 90s, you know? And so it's kind of just, like, a thing that you can say to, like, boomers to get them to take you seriously. (laughs) I mean, my goal in working in traditional media is to try to (laughs) affect change and teach these companies to take the internet seriously and, and try to understand this new media landscape because I think trust in institutions and trust in, in journalist institutions, are fa- it's failing. Sort of record low trust in the traditional media. And I don't know, I, I decided in the mid-2010s, I was like, I'm going to try to like work at these places and change them. And a lot of places I've worked that I've realized they're too far gone. But <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that the Atlantic is not going to break out a new TikTok dance? Because I don't think it's going to happen. Actually, the Atlantic is was like one of my favorite places to work because, I mean, I will say they have really thoughtful pieces about technology. I don't know. Yeah. Ross Anderson 
just wrote this phenomenal piece on AI. The Atlantic is like weirdly more with it than they get credit for. I think it's the newspapers that struggle because... You know, magazines can kind of adapt and be more like voicey in a way that lends itself to the internet. Yeah. But I wonder if certain, and I'm going to just say legacy institutions in a broad way, not just newspapers, but, you know, lots of things that existed as a way to determine credibility, fame, or influence in a long way. Maybe they're just never going to actually get it. And maybe we'll just see declining numbers for yearly award shows and so forth until the point at which maybe they eventually just, you know, die with a whimper versus a bang. Yeah, And that's the rest of the is. world just, just moves on. Yeah. Because in the book, I was reading about the live video section and you were talking about Periscope and Meerkat and Twitch and, you know, so I think Social Cam as well and all those companies. And like, I remember those and I remember how cool they were and, the, and how powerful they made me feel that I could just immediately go out and go to people in the same way that I remember setting my very first blog spot and how I felt like now I had a voice. And that was so cool and is still so antithetical and almost punk rock compared to the Emmys or the Grammys or the Golden Globes or whatever else sets the kind of prestige element. I know. I'm again, I think the whole, I think all of these legacy institutions have made themselves irrelevant by refusing to, you know, by putting themselves up in an ivory tower and kind of separating themselves, you know, from the really cool and culturally relevant stuff happening on the internet. And there's a dismissiveness that they have that you kind of want to root against them. Because you're like, you're so arrogant. You really believe that like you have this power and you don't, you're declining. And and they're so delusional about that. They're so delusional about that. Now, that's not to say that there's no institutional power because I think that a lot of that sort of legacy power and sort of power in the broader, like our economic landscape is actually just moving towards the tech companies. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, even that's, even that's changed though. I mean, you were talking early on about how like, you know, early YouTube creators would get like access to the front page of YouTube and like they'd be handpicked by the company. And now whenever I check the front page of YouTube and I do this semi-regularly in a logged out fashion, just to see kind of, if I was a brand new person to Nova, what would YouTube show me? Some of it's from individuals, but a lot of it's like a new Marvel trailer or something else. So it does seem like some incumbents have managed to preserve certain elements of their kind of authority online, even though it's certainly diluted and, well, I'm diluted and less concentrated. That's just typology. But it just feels like it's been diminished to the point in which they're kind of like similarly strong players to other individuals out there. But we're going to come right back to the current age of the internet, the era, and what content format is currently leading. But first, a quick break. Let's talk about formats, because one thing that hit me while I was reading was the progression of the internet from text, the blogger era, to photos, the Instagram era, if you will, the start of that, and then to video. And then that's been kind of an ongoing story that we're still into this day. Is there a new format apart from short form video that's bubbling up or are we still kind of firmly in the video age of the internet? Oh, yeah. No, we're firmly in the video age. I think short form video is is dominant. And I think we'll see, you know, new formats within short form video. But we're definitely in that era right now, unfortunately. So I think that the interesting thing is we haven't given up on blogging. People still use Instagram. People still use video. So it's almost like we've added layers to the kind of online content mix versus removing things as we've gone through these changes. So what I'm really struggling with is kind of what comes next, because I don't want to miss it when it comes. I want to get the best possible handle on whatever comes, but it feels like we won't get a new platform that really takes off until we have a new media format to drive that next pace of change. And I don't think it's going to be 
VR in the near term. I don't think it's going to be metaverse or whatever. (laughs) So it it almost feels like we've reached like a dead end of this progression that led to the blogger generation, the Instagram generation, and then kind of the TikTok era. It almost feels stagnant now, Taylor. I don't think we're stagnant. I think we're just in the video era right now and there's going to be a lot that comes next. I mean, I just think the internet is more and more integrated with our offline world. And so maybe what's next is just more along those lines. You know, like we're already seeing a lot of internet-enabled devices and home stuff, but like I see a further sort of like blending of all of these things happening. I mean, live streaming is popular. I don't think that that's necessarily going to be like some new thing, but I don't know. But we'll know when we see it. I mean, that's the best part about being a reporter is like you see these things happen and you can write about it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm sure you feel the same way. Like if you cover tech, people's number one question is like prediction. Give us your predictions. And I'm like, I don't know. Like I'm a reporter because I just wait until things happen and and then I write about it. But my my favorite version of that is, hey, should I buy this stock? Yes. I'm like, what do I look like? Like, go talk to your own financial advisor and leave me alone. And then I have friends that are like, hey, should I go work at Meta? I'm like, I don't fucking know. What? <laughs> live your life. Like, leave me out of it. I'm not, I just listen to people and try to talk to as many of them as I can. That's it. That's the extent of it. It's not, <laughs> it's not more than that. On the video thing, one thing that that hit me when I was reading through the progression of these platforms and formats was that the toxicity or backlash seemed to come no matter where you were. Like there was the mommy blogger boom, and then there was the backlash against them. And then there was the Instagram aesthetic and the backlash against that. And then there was, I mean, you talked about Gamergate and and a lot of other stuff. It seems though that the toxicity has ramped up over time and has made a lot of digital spaces less welcoming and fun. And to put it politely, Taylor, you are not an unknown person on the internet. (laughs) And I don't think I would really want to be you on Twitter for a day, but are there any positive signs or any reason to be optimistic that we could get back to an era in which things were less toxic online and perhaps I'm not going to say wholesome, but at least welcoming? (laughs) I know things are not looking good. No, (laughs) I don't see. I think the way that we get back there is by users demanding more control over their online spaces, which they have not done in a meaningful way. I think we accept a lot. I mean, this is kind of a theme of my book is like we accept a lot from these tech companies, but users are incredibly influential. Like in social products, the power users shape the products as much as the product managers at Meta and and Twitter and stuff. So I think if you had a lot of big people saying, look, we need XYZ features, and you have seen that. The reason that we have the anti-harassment tools that we have today are because famous people and influential content creators demanded them. Just because they are the ones that are exposed far and away to the most harassment. I mean, I do think that this like big broadcast era of social media is over where like every single thing that you post default goes to the entire world. You know, like it's actually not a great system of content delivery and it's kind of a liability. And I just think that the excitement of that, which really propelled all those companies in the 2010s has worn off. And I think people now want to reach their target audience. They actually don't want to reach the whole world. They just want to reach people that care about what they're talking about. And so you see platforms integrating more and more ways to segment your audiences, whether that's close friends or smaller spaces or just like TikTok, which has this AI, which, you know, theoretically will deliver your content just to the people that want to see it. One of the best parts of TikTok, though, famously, has been discovery sure. right? and the ability to go out and, and find new stuff. And But it's relevant discovery. I mean, sometimes TikTok, you're right. Like sometimes like TikTok will be like, oh, you're talking about XYZ. We're going to deliver it to a bunch of people that hate that. Yeah. But 
for the most part, it's pretty relevant discovery. Discoverability then, not necessarily a bad thing, but you don't want to go out to everybody. You don't want the context collapse. You want people who know about the issue and and have informed thoughts or want to talk about whatever you're talking about. The worst experience of the internet are these like context collapse where like somebody posts something that they mean in one way to one specific community, right? On like Twitter and it gets sucked out into, you know, the worst people possible. Like that's a bad experience. But I I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned how it's quite often the tools that we see on digital platforms are driven by people and their demand for them. It's also been the case that you wrote that people get ahead of platforms and often drag them kicking and screaming. So on Twitter, people had invented retweeting by just saying RT at name and then stealing their thing whole cloth. Now we have the much more kind of genteel button so it stays in that context. But I mean, it was pretty bare bones at the time. And I I guess I had forgotten how much Twitter really was just SMS, 140 characters, and that was it. It almost seems like silly in the era in which all platforms seem to want to do everything from video to text, kind of all in one big mishmash, that we had something that was so pure for so long. It makes me oddly nostalgic, which makes me feel old. I don't like that. (laughs) I know. Writing this whole book made me nostalgic. It's just, just because I began to, I think my first blog was on TypePad, which I think was like a blogger competitor. And I had like a blogger back in like high school and maybe it was middle school. And I remember when the corporations were just starting to have their own blogs. Like that was this big revolutionary thing the journal kept writing about. And ah, man, I don't want to sound like that person who says that the older eras were better, but there was like almost like an innocence slash honesty to the earlier internet that seems to be much lost now in more professional content and platforms that are so sorted out that you have to be in the know to how to gain them to get ahead. Like, I don't think if you and I started the Taylor and Alex YouTube channel like tomorrow that we would do that well, just because I feel like everyone's probably already figured out how to trick the system enough that there's less kind of like open space for well, for new folks. Yeah, I think there is room for niche content. I think it's just really, content is niche now. And so there's so much content, like you're speaking to the saturation, right? But I think part of that saturation is because people have realized the economic value of followers and following and having a big platform. And that's what my book is also about, is people increasingly recognizing the economic power of building large audiences online. And back when we started out, when I was blogging and I was getting popular online, like, I mean, people, remember people were cruel. People made fun of you for it. Like, it was not cool people that were like hyper online in the, in the odds. Well, I would argue very politely in anti-defense of us that being terminally online as, as you and I are still isn't like the coolest thing. No, but it's aspirational. Like, I mean, I would say having online power and clout is aspirational. Whereas it wasn't considered aspirational in 2008, 2009, because there was no economic power tied to it. You couldn't monetize in the same way. You know, you didn't have this rush of people trying to get on and get their followers so that they can make money because the internet was still pretty devoid of money making. I mean, not completely, of course, but social media had not been monetized to oblivion. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think we saw the natural evolution of that during the last kind of venture capital startup boom, and you mentioned this in the book, when there was all this money that flowed into creator economy startups, I think it was several billion dollars very quickly and then a bunch more that followed. And it felt like on Twitter, where I spend most of my time, that, or I'm sorry, on X, can we call it X now? (laughs) We'll, We'll get to that. Hold that thought. I was so impressed that people were taking this stuff seriously, but it seemed very much like a bunch of people showing up at the end of a party yes. and trying to keep it going <laughs> yes. longer. No, they sh- it was like people showing up at the end of the party and then being like, sort of suggesting all this stuff that people had already done. Like, let's play Twister. Right. It's like, we we played that two hours ago, man. And then they're like, yeah. 
giving money. I mean, my favorite thing with the VCs, I get so much enjoyment out of VC Twitter, which I never really discovered until 2020 because these people were never relevant to my beat. And then like them discovering the influencer world, funding some of the dumbest startups alive. I hate to say it. And then when those startups don't work out being like, okay, I'm declaring that the creator economy is dead. It's like, you guys are, what are you talking about? Like, you just funded a bunch of these companies. Well, tell me, tell me about that. It's like, where do you think the VCs were looking and why do they get it wrong? Well, yeah. I mean, look, I think the VCs that understand media got it right and have been in this business for a long time. It's ultimately, this is like, you know, changing in media landscape. And, you know, we, as we've seen, VCs do not generally understand media. I mean, the ones that do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That Yes, that's a correct statement. Most VCs do not understand media, just period, full stop. Yeah, I think they like rushed in. They funded all this weird stuff, you know, went through the hype cycle, which by the way, like I'm glad about. I think VCs rushing in at the end, as somebody was explaining to me, is like actually sort of like the ultimate acknowledgement of an industry maturing, you know, that that sort of cycle happens. There was just a lot of kind of misunderstanding of how things work. Like, I mean, it's just so funny to see them fall over themselves about like Mr. Beast productizing himself and wow, influencers can launch products. It's like, did you pay attention to literally anything over the past decade? Like every single beauty YouTuber has had their own makeup line since 2012. Like this. Yes. And again, so much of this has been pioneered by women. This entire industry was pioneered by women, which is fundamentally why most of them didn't take it seriously. And I'm not saying all VCs. I feel like I have to always say every time because they get so mad at me, like not all VCs, not all VCs. There are some VCs that are very smart about media and they've been in this space for a long time. What is it? The churning group and, you know, TCG. Like these these people that invested in Barstool early and other companies that recognize the power of online creator and creator driven companies. But anyway, not to go on my rant, but (laughs) I I just had to laugh about when all that was happening. (laughs) I'm here for it. I think the point about gender is very important because I think people underestimated the size of certain industries. And I think this is why we haven't gotten a new Rihanna album in so long is because she's too busy making eight to 20 times the money with her other line of stuff than she was off of records. Now I'm sad about that. I think Rihanna should do should do more music, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while. But if you're a VC sitting in, you know, Sand Hill Road, just looking at enterprise software, yeah, you're going to miss that. And then when you show up at the end of the party with a truckload of money trying to keep it going, people are still going to go home. And I just feel bad for creators that maybe moved to a new platform that raised a bunch of money and then ended up kind of like stuck out at sea when the tide went out, if you will. And the money dried up from folks who were really just there because they thought they could turn $1 into three really quickly. It's just, I don't know. It feels a little gauche. Yeah. But then again, I'm a capitalist, so like I can't get that mad, but still, eh, it was a little weird. I want to go back, though, to the, the idea of, of context and niches, if you will, because I, I like the way you describe TikTok as, yes, discoverability, but with a particular context. Is the internet kind of going back to what it was in that case? Because if you think about the early blogger days, people had their own little place where they talked to their audience and they did their thing. Then we had platforms that gave people feeds. Then we had algorithms that helped to surface certain things, recommendations and the like. And what you're saying makes me feel a little bit like we're kind of doing the full loop back to smaller communities, greater context and more targeted output. And if that's the case, that should engender a whole new crop of companies. But is that where you see things going? Yeah, I definitely see things going towards more niche communities and niche media and just niche areas because everyone is getting online. And so even the smallest niche, like you're able to monetize more effectively than you could 15 years ago. And so I think that that's really positive. You know, there are still breakout things that reach the masses, but it's just most things will never get the scale, you know, that you could get 
several years back because there's just so much more content out there. Like you said, there's so many more options, which I think is is great. You know, I think that that's a positive thing. And Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. The variety is amazing to me. Like, I love that when I go on YouTube and I look up some of my favorite, I mean, like, let's be clear, hyper niche content creators around a certain subgenre of strategy video games that I like. It's amazing. Like, it's almost like I have my own personal video team making stuff just for me. It feels so targeted to my interests. Are they ever going to go big? Absolutely not. They're writing about city building games with a focus on resource management. It is a niche and I know it, but I love that it's there. So that still feels very welcoming to me. I just wonder if it's always going to live on YouTube, you know, like this centralized mega platform. Well, what's hard is that we have this tech landscape that's so dominated by incumbents. I think it's very... Notable that the only real challenger to Facebook and Google over the past, you know, decade has been TikTok, which is owned by, you know, a multi-billion dollar Chinese tech conglomerate. That is the level of resources that you need to have to compete with Meta and Google and all these other big players. So I think it's really hard to compete. But I will say it's been exciting just in the, you know, watching the death of Twitter to see this kind of like flourishing, you know, like group of alternatives. I don't think any of them are going to last, but like, it's just, a it's, it reminds me of like the social cam meerkat, you know, where you suddenly saw this like little crop of startups come up around trying to fill sort of like one void. I mean, are you trying to tell me that I'm not going to manage to transfer over all my Twitter followers to Blue Sky? Because that, you're breaking my heart, Taylor. <laughs> I know. I don't know. But I still love those. I love those little like pockets, you know. I mean, I have said, and I tried to explain this to my editors 150 million times, but like there is not going to be a one-to-one replacement of Twitter. I know everyone wants that. It's not going to happen. Like I wrote about this in response to these editor queries. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago, actually, about how so much of news content has actually moved to TikTok. You know, when we used to go to Twitter and places like that to kind of learn about the war in Ukraine or whatever, and a lot more people are getting information about big breaking news events through TikTok. So there's just, you know, people are turning to email newsletters, like people are turning, like, I I don't, I don't think that there's not going to be a one-to-one replacement. Okay. I want to run through a couple of quick fire questions. I just realized we're a little low on time and I more stuff I want to get to. One of the platforms that I've been on for a bajillion years is Reddit. And they have been going through a highly public spat with their user base as they prepare to go public. Given your recent historical dive through all things platforms and social media, uh, how does the Reddit situation shake out? I mean, ultimately, there's going to be a resolution between these two parties. I think that the Reddit company, like, vastly underestimated the power of its user base. And you're also seeing more collective action among users. Like, you're seeing more and more users on these social platforms, like, sort of band together to advocate for specific changes. And again, I love that. I think that that is, like... That's how it should be. But I think they were humbled a little bit and they should have been because I think that the users are what make the platform. And But I do think ultimately Reddit has a level of scale that they can also do a lot of what they want and lose a certain amount of users or communities and still be okay and have a successful company. Yeah. We'll see. In the same way that Mastodon has never quite taken off, I don't think that any of the decentralized Reddit clones are going to make it. Yeah. And I still use Reddit, even though I feel bad about it, but I've been on for so long. I don't know. I just, it's part of my DNA at this point. All right. Next thing, we cannot have anyone on the show without mentioning AI, just because it's contractually required by all media in the world. So is AI going to shake up the current dynamics of online creation platforms and distribution in a material way in the next couple of years? Or is it going to remain more of a fringe thing that people might use when they make something, but not something that will supplant kind of the economy as it currently exists? Well, I don't think that AI is ready to supplant the creative economy 
anytime super soon. I've tried to use chat GPT and it's like, it's like inept. But AI tools are very valuable. I actually just wrote a feature for Men's Health about this, like sort of just AI enabled influencers. I mean, I think there's a lot of amazing AI powered editing tools and video tools and things like that. And they can be used again as a tool. Like chat GPT is great for brainstorming and coming up with certain things, but I don't think it's going to supplant the creative world yet. Eventually, maybe if it gets better, but it's pretty bad right now. I think it would have to get so much better. So much better. I mean, we're so, so far away from better. it. I love the yes. TikToks where people perform AI written comedy. It's so bad. I have not seen that, but please text it to me and I will put it in the show notes so everyone can enjoy that because that's hilarious. It's so funny. All right, Taylor, before I let you go, last thing, and we talked about this a little bit, but this is just so personal to me, I have to bring it up. Twitter, where you and I have spent a lot of time over the years, is not doing so well. Does it pull out of its tailspin or does it go straight into the ground in your view? No, it's going into the ground. It's in the ground no. already. It's already crashed no. and burned. Taylor, it's the only platform where I have reach. You well, can't take it from oh me. Oh my God. Okay, let me say something. I think journalism needs a clout reset. I think there are way too many journalists that are reliant on Twitter. <laughs> I didn't invite you on the show to punch me in the face. <laughs> no, 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 not you, but... Um, no, definitely me. I think definitely it's good me. for journalists to be forced to get out of Twitter and get into the real world. And I mean like other platforms, because I think so much of our news environment is driven by Twitter narratives. And, you know, I think it's good for people to be forced to kind of spend time in other places on the internet. So I am other places on the internet, but anonymously and quite. I know, I know. No, trust me. I'm sad. I, you're talking to the biggest Twitter addict ever. I mean, I, <laughs> like I've been... I mean, it's you or me because <laughs> I have gone through several cleanses of my personal tweets and I have deleted hundreds of thousands of tweets since 2008. So like I'm probably up. I mean, if I had to guess. Around a half million tweets in my life, which is embarrassing. I'm with you there. I know. It's sad. It is sad. I Twitter, I wish that Twitter could have been changed. I really liked what Casey Newton has been writing about why Elon is destroying the company, which is that like, I made a TikTok about this, but like, it's like a political project for him. You know, he wants to yeah. promote a specific ideology and he's not running it like a traditional business. That is actually the perfect note to end on because Casey Newton is a journalist that I've known since he was back at CNET, I think, before he was at The Verge, before he left to go found Platformer, which is on Substack, which is a venture-backed creator platform that allows for more individualized creation as apart from mass platforms themselves. And the fact that we're citing him and his reporting about a aging giant in the social space is, I think, perfect. So Taylor, thank you for coming on. The book is extremely online, comes out October 3rd. You can pre-order it now. I got an early copy. I'm still going to buy one to support you. Thank you. If folks want to find you on the great internet, I won't ask for your Twitter because that's apparently moot, <laughs> but where should they go? Well, thankfully, I'm just at Taylor Lorenz on every platform and I sign up to everything with a login page. So you can find <laughs> me Instagram, threads, TikTok, YouTube. I'm just at Taylor Lorenz everywhere. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's all the time we have for today, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Of course, you can find equity all across the world of social. We are Equity Pod on Twitter and threads and we skate under the handle equity equity comes out monday wednesday and friday we'll talk to you soon and don't forget equity will be opening up disrupt 2023 this september in san francisco we'll see you there thanks bye 
Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 